0: Uh, in your Bibles, uh, Psalm 83, uh, and a psalm I've been reading and meditating on for the last uh, few weeks, and um, early on in those uh, reading and meditating times, uh, I felt impressed of God that this would be the, the sermon that he would want me to share with you on the first Sunday of the year. Psalm uh, 83, a prayer That was sung to God by Asaph. The Bible says, Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace. And be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult. And they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee. The tabernacles of Edom, the Ishmaelites, of Moab and the Hagarines, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek. The Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also is joined with them. They have opened the children of Lot. Do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera, as to Jabin at the brook of Kishon, which perished at Indor. They became as dung for the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb, yea, all their princes as Zeba and as Zamuna, who said, Let us take to ourselves the houses of God in possession. O God, make them like a wheel as the stubble before the wind, as the fire burneth a wood, And as the flame setteth the mountains on fire, so persecute them with thy tempest, and make them afraid with thy storm. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled for every day. Let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that thou... Whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. I want to draw our attention to the question what are you praying as you enter into a new year? What are you praying? What is consuming your thoughts in your times before the Lord? a few weeks ago on December 18th I sent an email to uh, all of the members of the church about a survey that was released in early December by Gallup it was a Gallup poll pastor Ryan mentioned the survey in his message last Sunday morning so if you were here last Sunday morning you heard him refer to this uh, to this uh, poll uh, again it was it was uh, a survey that was put together in early December and it was entitled Americans mental health ratings sink to a new low Americans mental health ratings sink to a new low it was a survey about the decline in mental health as perceived by the individual my own mental health not My survey of what I perceive other people's mental health to be, but what I consider my mental health to be. And so this survey was taken in early December, and as the story was published in December, uh, it began this way. Americans' latest assessment of their mental health is worse than it has been at any point In the last two decades. And so the survey purported to give evidence that Americans' view of their own mental health in December had hit a a two-decade low. Now, while the majority of U.S. citizens as a part of the study rated their mental health in a positive way, They noted that the difference between the way Americans viewed their own mental health one year ago, at the end of 2019, that the current mental health assessment had dropped nine points under last year's, which put it at a two decade low. That was an interesting observation. With regards to the ending of a very difficult year in America, 2020 will always be remembered as a challenging year for Americans, for anyone in the world. The, the uh, survey broke, as you would expect, as surveys do, and as Pastor Ryan mentioned last week, the, the survey broke the, the results down into a variety of demographics, age, age. Um, ethnicity, uh, gender, uh, all kinds of differences, just showing the, the difference in self-assessment in different demographic groups. But the thing that caught my eye when I saw the survey uh, in December and read down through the survey, the thing that caught my eye was that every demographic group save one had dropped negatively under last year's assessment, regardless what the demographic across the board, everyone went down in their own self-assessment of their own mental health, except one demographic. And that one demographic was the people who attended church every week. They broke that out from a different demographic of those who attend church occasionally or those who attend church on some other uh, dimension than weekly, regular, faithful, every week, I'm there, church. And those people who were in church every week, their mental health assessment actually was higher than the same demographic in 2019, in spite of 2020. In spite of all the challenges, in spite of the politics and the and the COVID and the Antifa and, 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 and all of the, the all of the things that happened that, that filled the news media for week after week throughout the entire year, only one demographic at the end of two thousand twenty had a better mental health assessment than their same counterparts in twenty nineteen. That's A very interesting observation. Why? Why is it that people that are constantly in church blew every other demographic out of the water on mental health? On how I view my life? of whether I have a positive outlook on life? And I would suggest that It is the person who joins together with others on a weekly basis to interact with God, to interact with God's truth, to interact with God's Word, who actually meet together and systematically are under the influence of the fellowship of other Christian people in the study of the Word of God and singing songs. It's those people who understand what lies behind. Beneath the surface of life events. And they see life through a biblical worldview. And when you view life, when you view what happens around you through a biblical worldview, that builds hope and peace in the heart. Regardless of what happens around me, I've read the book. Regardless of what is happening in the world around me, I know God. And those who are seekers of the heart of God are best equipped to handle the tragedies and trials of life and maintain a positive mental health through those situations. I see that in the psalmist who wrote Psalm 83. Now, you're here today, so... uh, And some of you are here, have been here every Sunday. You are in that demographic of the people who have the best mental health in America. The people that have the best, most positive outlook on life in America. Keep it up. (laughs) Let's maintain it in 2021. Amen. Keep hope alive. Keep it going. We have to understand that the, the, the solution to the problems around us is not in the world around us. It is in the book that we hold on our laps this morning. It's in the relationship we have with the author of that book. It's in our ability to look ahead of us and know where this world is going and what lies ahead. These are the things that build a positive Mental health amongst people. And so it's those people who are close to God in the Word of God. I don't know what challenges we're going to face in 2021. We don't even know who's going to be the president yet in 2021. I don't know what the challenges are going to be. We don't know what's going to happen with COVID. We don't know medically what's going to happen uh, in, in our in our in our country. We don't know politically what's going to happen. We don't know economically what's going to happen. There are so many things we just don't know that lie ahead of us in 2021. But you know what we do know? We do know that God's already in tomorrow. There's a song that is played is sung by a Pensacola group that is on our rotating music here at the church. Uh, and every once in a while I'll hear it rotate up and I'll hear them sing a song, the essence of which the theme of the song is that we have no need to worry about tomorrow because God is already there. And when I heard them sing the song the first time and I and I that thought settled into my heart, that is so powerful. I don't have to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. God's already there. He's got it. And my relationship with Him and my interaction with Him and His Word is key to my mental health, my attitudes in life, my spirit. And you know, the world desperately needs to see some believers in God that are on top of their game. They need to see some believers in God with a smile on their face. In spite of what's happening in their lives, I remember preaching through First Peter years ago. As a matter of fact, it was one of the first books I preached through as a kid preacher back in Ontario, Canada, back in the mid '70s. I preached through First Peter. There, I preached through First Peter. Here, First Peter is a book that's all about a good, positive attitude in difficult times. And I remember reading someone's comment about First Peter. They said the world around us needs to, needs to see the pilot in a little Piper cub that's bouncing around in the clouds and in the, trying to get through the storm and it's bouncing all over the place and up and down and over and, and it's having a tough time staying in the air and finally it breaks under the clouds and it comes down into a smooth three point landing. And the author said, that's what our life is about. And the unsaved around us desperately need to see us in how we go through that storm. And whether it beats us or whether our God is big enough. Whether we know his heart. Whether we're able to maintain a biblical worldview with a positive mental health. In the midst of difficult and troublesome times around us, well, I see that so much here in Psalm 83. Psalm 83 is a is a declaration uh, of need. It's a prayer. It, it, the little if you have a uh, a study Bible, you probably have in small print at the uh, at just above verse number one. You probably have a title that says a song or psalm. Of Asaph, it was the last of the psalms that was written for Asaph, and and the word song speaks of singing, and the word psalm speaks of music that's added to the words being sung, and so it's almost repetitious. It's this these words were put to music and sung as a song to God. It's a prayer put to music and sung regularly from the heart of those who are seekers of the heart of God in a country going through horrible situations. And the psalm has a strong context of national and international events that were shaping and threatening the psalmist's world. He didn't know if his country was going to survive. The national and international events that was threatening his country's existence. His reaction to those threatening times has been preserved by God for the value of every generation to read and meditate and study, to see a good, positive mental health in the midst of turbulent political times. So God preserve this for us today when we face impossible danger and complications in life and if and if you will take the time as I have for the last several weeks in reading this psalm over and over and over again, reading it comparing phrases and words and and seeing what's linked to what, and trying to understand what why did God preserve this for me? What does God want this to play? In my life, what part does he want it to play in my life? And if if you'll think carefully, you'll learn much about international political philosophy. You know, political philosophy found in the word of God is quite interesting. Our, Our generation here in America desperately needs to recapture a biblical worldview and a biblical political philosophy. And there's some interesting parts that are unveiled here in this psalm. But you know, most importantly, it's not the political philosophy that we observe. It's the reaction of the psalmist to the political events that is the key to Psalm 83. And why it was memorized and put to music and sang to God over and over again by the people of God. That they might learn how to react to political events. That take place around them. Out of negative situations came a positive expression of hope. You know, probably the word that's being preached on in churches around the world today to kick off 2021 more than any other word is the word hope. Hope. To try to instill optimism. To try to recapture a positive mental health in the midst of uh, the political, international, national, international political events of our world And and out of negative situations came a positive expression of hope and faith in God. And so our message this morning is, is going to lay out a little bit of the political, but only for the purpose of capturing the practical reaction of the psalmist. That's what I need. The practical reaction of the psalmist so that I can have hope in God. As He had hope in God. So how can we accomplish that? Well, I want to observe with you uh, three three uh, realizations that the psalmist had uh, from this passage of Scripture. And uh, and you see those uh, as present, past and future uh, on your little sermon worksheet. Let's jump into this. I want you to see his present realization, his present realization. Uh, he said, "It's looking really bad right now." That was his realization of the present in his life. He looked at what was going on around him. He looked at the situation, and he said, "We're in trouble." And they were in trouble. They were in big trouble in Israel at this time. He describes a concentrated multination effort to annihilate. His country, Israel. Anti-Semitism to the max. And he knew his country may be going down. Now, we don't know for sure exactly when this happened. Those who study uh, this psalm and study the history of Israel, uh, the majority have come to a consensus that it probably occurred uh, in Second Chronicles 20 when King Jehoshaphat, was the king of the southern kingdom uh, of Judah, or the southern kingdom of Israel. And and we don't know for sure, but whenever it occurred, what is important is to see the seriousness of the situation they were in. And it was looking really bad. How does he describe the situation? Well, first of all, he describes his opposition. Look at verse number 2. Psalm 83 verse number 2, he said, For lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. I want you to notice how he describes the opposition around him politically. He calls, he says to God, God, they're thine enemies, they that hate thee. So notice very simply and very clearly, They are the enemies of God who hate God. Those are the ones the psalmist is is describing. They're enemies of God who hate God. These people hate God. They hate what God stands for. They hate that God is against what they're for. They are the enemies of God. They oppose God. They fight against God. You see, a biblical worldview will insist that you view the life around you in terms of the spiritual, not the physical. And this spiritual battle goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Lucifer convinced Adam and Eve to join him in his rebellion against God by painting a picture for them that God doesn't really know what's best for your life. How do you know that God really said that? Did God really say that? If you only knew the reality behind it, you'd know that God is trying to take advantage of you and keep you from things that you would like to have. And once Lucifer convinced Adam and Eve to join him in his rebellion, they rebelled against God under the guise of God, not giving them what they wanted and what they really would enjoy in life. And so started the battle, the spiritual battle between the Creator and His created, A battle that has followed humanity down through our history to this very day. This is a spiritual battle. These people that, that Psalm, the psalmist is describing, he sees them ultimately as not the enemy of Israel. He sees them ultimately as not His enemy. He sees them as ultimately God's enemy who hate God, who hate God. You know, they don't appreciate what God stands for. They don't appreciate what God stands against. They hate him and they are his enemies. A very real problem for the psalmist. I want you to notice as he continues to speak of the present, how bad it was. He not only described the opposition, but he described the opposition's activities in verses 2 through 5. In verses 2 through 5, he describes what they're doing. And I want you to notice something very interesting. There, There is a statement that they're God's enemies at the beginning, and there's a statement that they're God's enemies at the end. But everything in between with regards to what they're doing, they're doing against God's people. Why is that? Well, if you hate God, how do you attack God? If you're the enemy of God, how are you going to attack God? You've got a, you got a, a missile that will get all the way up to where God is? Uh, you know, our, our American military is, is pretty amazing, but I, they can't quite reach God's Presence to take him out. How do you attack God? Well, verse number 2 says, They're thine enemies, they that hate thee. But notice verse number 3. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people. They've consulted against thy hidden ones. Which is an interesting phrase over in Psalm 27, verse 5. The Bible says that God hides his children he hides us in his pavilion. That's a good place to be hidden, isn't it? But the enemy of God wants to attack the hidden ones, the people of God that are hidden in God's special place of protection. He says that in verse four, they come and they, they, they say, "Come, let us cut them off." In verse number 5, they've consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against, notice it's back to God. They're confederate against you, God. He starts by saying they're God's enemies. He starts by saying they hate God. He ends by saying they have confederated themselves together as a league of nations against God. But when he describes their activities, it's all about their attack on Israel. The psalmist's country, the people of God. Verse number two says that they make a tumult. That's interesting in light of what we've just gone through in America in 2020. They make a tumult. What does that mean? The word tumult speaks of noise, commotion, drawing attention, creating an uproar. How many of our cities have, have uh, people, gangs, got together and, and organized themselves together to bring a tumult? To gain notoriety, to get attention, to get on the news, to create noise, create a stir. Nothing new about that political philosophy. It was being used thousands of years ago in Israel, around Israel. Verse 2 says, they make a tumult. They that hate thee have lifted up the head, the arrogancy, the pride. I mean, in America, they're even so bold as to call it. By its rightful name. This is a gay pride parade. The arrogancy, the hatred of God's morality, the hatred of what God's for, the hatred of what God's against. They lift up their head in proud and pride and create a commotion to gain attention. This is political philosophy of the attack against God. Verse number 3 says they plan together how they're going to overcome God by overcoming God's people. He says they take counsel, crafty counsel. They meet together. They plan. They have strategy. They plan out how they're going to go about doing what they're going to do. Crafty. Secretive. Sneaky. They get together and they counsel against Israel. How can we drive them into the sea? How can we be done once and for all with the people of God, Israel? They consult against. Verse 4 says, they say, let us cut them off from being a nation. We don't want Israel to exist anymore. We want to destroy the nation itself. Verse 4 says, That the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. We want finally for the name Israel to be blotted out. We want to tear down every statue. We want to remove every historical reference. We want to remove the heritage and identity of who Israel is so that they'll never be remembered again ever as they counsel together. Planned and strategized how they would attack God by attacking the people of God. Who are these people who so hate God? Who are these people who so hate everything God is for and hate everything that hate God for being against what, what they like and enjoy? Who, who are these people? Well, the psalmist then names them in verse number six to verse number eight. Edom, Ishmaelites, Moab, Hagarenes, Gabal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistines, Tyre, Asher, children of Lot. And then notice the word Selah. Do you see that word Selah right there? That's a rest. It means stop and think about what I just said. Now, when I read, when I started reading this, I just, I just kind of read down through verses 6, 7, and 8 really fast and just kept on going. But then I stopped and I went back and I started looking at who these people are. Who are these people? Let me show you who these people are as people and who these people are geographically based on where they are. I began to study these people on this next slide. You'll see who these people are as people. This is the genealogy of Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Here is the family of the nation of Israel. What is circled in green is the people groups listed in verses 6, 7, and 8. I'm not going to take them in the order there. I'll just point out that Abraham's brother had a son who accompanied him. As he went to the promised land, Abraham took Lot, his nephew, with him. Lot later had two sons, Moab and Ammon. The Moabites and the Ammonites were the children of Lot that are mentioned here in this text. Abraham through I had, you know, Sarah convinced Abraham to have a child through his, his, uh, her handmaid, Hagar. So the Hagarenes are mentioned in this text. Hagar's son was Ishmael. The Ishmaelites are mentioned. Ishmael, through his lineage, produced the Edomites. They're mentioned. Isaac and Rebekah had a son named Esau. And Esau had the Amalekites through their, their, their genealogy. Also, Ishmael and Esau came together, their genealogies, and produced the Edomites. So you got the Amalekites and the Edomites. And then you've got some ones that aren't connected. The Phoenicians, Philistines, and Assyrians are mentioned, but weren't directly connected. The majority of them were family. The majority of the enemies who wanted to annihilate Israel were closely related, or not too distantly related from Israel. Let me show you where they were geographically. On this next slide, here's Israel. Here's Tyre and Phoenicia. The Assyrians, Asher, Ammonites, Hagarines, Moabites, Amalekites, Edomites, Ishmaelites, Midianites. As you'll see, if this is Israel, they are surrounded by the enemies of God who want to annihilate them. Anti-Semitism to the max. We will destroy the people of Israel, annihilate them down with the Jews, push them into the sea. We want to make it so that no one will even remember their name again. Anti-Semitism to the max. Now, that was all the present. That was what the psalmist was living in. He was living in an environment where he was surrounded by people who hate his God, hate his God's morality, hate what his God stands for, hate what his God stands against. And because they hate God and can't attack God, they begin to attack the people of God. You believe this? You're a problem in our culture now. You stand up for this? You're no longer welcome to work here anymore. When they can't directly attack God, they attack the people who believe what the God stands for. That's what the psalmist was dealing with in his life in the present. He was dealing with severe political entities carefully working together as a confederacy, confederate nations Teamed together to destroy his country. How does he react to these difficult times? I want you to notice the second realization has to do with the past. You see, the psalmist remembered we've been here before. We've been here before as a nation. He began to recall back 300 years earlier to similar dire situations in his country's history. It was 200 years after Joshua had led Israel into the Promised Land. And it was at the end of their 40-year, which happened at the end of their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. It's the period recorded in your Old Testament book of Judges. And he began to remember. You know, back 300 years ago, we were in similar situations where we were surrounded by enemies that wanted to destroy Israel. And he began to reflect upon those situations. He recalled those enemies. He recalled the impossible situation that Israel was in. And he recalled the lessons from history of how God used nature and the enemy's minds. Nature warfare and psychological warfare. To overcome the enemies who wanted to annihilate the nation of Israel 300 years previously. So you see on your little worksheet, we've been here before and God used nature. We've been here before and God used psychological warfare. He begins to describe them. You can read about them in the book of Judges and verses 9 and 10. He said, God, do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera and Jabin at the brook This is recorded in Judges chapters 4 and 5. Israel was surrounded by the Canaanite nation. Jabin was the king of the Canaanites. Sisera was the captain of Jabin's armies. Sisera had 900 iron chariots. And Israel couldn't match militarily the enemy that they had and be able to defeat them. And Sisera brought those 900 chariots of war to destroy Israel. And a woman by the name of Deborah said to Barak, who was a military leader for Israel, she told Barak, you need to amass the people of Israel and you need to fight Sisera. This is suicide. He said, I'll not go unless you go with me. She says, okay, I'll go with you. But mark it down, when God gives the battle to Israel, it's not going to be you, Barak, who's going to be the hero who led and won the battle. It's going to be a woman that's going to get the accolades for the winning of the battle. So Barak says, I don't care. I'm not going to go unless you go with me. So she went with him, and he went. And God sent a storm Sisera came down to in the valley of Jezreel with the 900 chariots along the Kishon River. And God sent a mighty storm and the rain had turned the area into mud. And imagine those iron chariots getting stuck in the mud and couldn't maneuver. And they became seeding ducks for Israel. And Israel won the battle. And Sisera, the leader of the Canaanite armies, got off from his stuck chariot and ran for cover and hid in the tent of a woman by the name of Jael. And she gave him some milk to drink. He laid down weary from the battle. She laid a blanket over him. And when he was good and fast asleep, she got a great big old hammer. She got a great big old nail. And she nailed right through his skull from one temple through the other temple and nailed him to the ground. And the woman won the battle because Barak didn't have the guts to stand up and lead. How did God give victory to Israel in an insurmountable situation? God used nature. And then and then the psalmist said, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb and Zeba and, and Zalmunna. You'll read about that in, in, uh, in Judges chapter 6 to 8. It's, you remember, you'll, you know the name Gideon, the Midianites. Uh, they had been enslaved to the Midianites for seven years, and Gideon was hiding in a wine press threshing out grain, scared to death of the Midianite armies that had kept them enslaved for seven years. And the angel of God came to him and said, "Thou mighty man of valor." And Gideon looked around him and said, "Who me? Mighty man of gal- valor? Not." Not me. I'm hiding in a wine press just trying to get enough food to feed my family. I'm scared to death. God sent him out to go to battle against the massive Midianite army. Judges chapters 6 to uh, chapters 11 and 12 describe the Midianite army as being without number, unnumbered for, multiple, for the size of their army. God told Gideon to get the people together. He got together 32,000 men. And God said, that's too many. And he whittled it down to 10,000. It was going to be 32,000 against an innumerable massive armament. Now it's whittled down to 10,000 men against this massive Midianite army. God says, "Uh uh-uh, still too many. We need to whittle them down again. And they went down to the brook. You remember this story? Tell them to get a drink of water. The one who put their faces down and didn't stay alert and look around, tell them to go home. The ones that keep their eyes up and look around and get the water and bring the water up to their mouth as they watch for the enemy, those are the ones who are going to be your army, Gideon. When it was all said and done, the army was whittled down to 300 men. 300 men against an innumerable multitude of the Midianite armies. By the way, our group was at that spring of water. Where Gideon's 300 were identified as being the ones who would go against the Midianites. Well, how did it turn out? Well, God used psychological warfare. He caused the enemies to think that Gideon's 300 men were in reality a massive army. The the torches hidden inside pitchers at night and, and the bursting of the pitchers and waving the torches and crying out the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And the enemy got confused. They got they didn't know what was going on. They, they They began to scramble. They actually began to fight one another. And the Bible says that they destroyed themselves. And Gideon's 300 came out victorious. Now why does the psalmist mention that? He says in verse number 9, do it again God. Do it again God. Do to the present enemies around us what you did back in Judges. D- do it again like you did it with the with, with with Sisera being destroyed by Jael the lady. Do it again like Gideon opposed and won the victory. God, use nature, use psychology, use whatever you want, but just God, do it again. I know you're able. You've got a great track record, God. I know we've been in this situation before. And when we've been in this situation before, we turn to You and You. did supernatural, miraculous things that we can't explain or understand. God, do it again. You know, when the, the present state of the psalmist, reflecting back 300 years to Judges, and using two historical examples... Of his faith in a God who can do anything. To bolster his faith and his hope in the present day. That present day of Psalm 83 was 2,870 years ago. 2,870 years later, the enemies of God are still trying to annihilate Israel. And at every stage along the way, God has done it again. And He has preserved the nation that He chose that would give us our Savior, the nation who gave us our Bible, the nation who are the people of God, who God chose to use, who the enemies of God have tried to annihilate for thousands of years, and they're still here, and the enemies of God still hate Israel today and want to annihilate her today. Interesting days in which we live. And, of course, we know that President Trump's, perhaps some of his greatest achievements have been the unprecedented treaties he's brokered between Israel Israel, And the Arab states around her. The media won't give him credit for it. But we know that that's among some of the greatest achievements he's had in the last four years. But we also can read the rest of our Bible and we know those treaties aren't going to stand. They're a short help for a short period of time. But we can read the rest of the Bible and know that Israel still has some really hard years in front of them. But the same God that delivered them in Judges, the same God that delivered them in Psalm 83, the same God that delivered them from Hitler, the same God that has kept them alive in spite of all of the enemies surrounding her today, that same God is going to rescue her at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus Christ comes back to earth the second time and stop the annihilation of the people of Israel. Yes, we can, we can look historically to judges. We can look at the present time. The psalmist looked historically. The psalmist looked at the present day of his day. We can even look prophetically into the future and we can know that the greatest battle, by the way, here's the greatest battle, this next slide, when Israel, at the end of the tribulation period, is surrounded By the armies described in the books of Ezekiel and Revelation, who will march against Israel to finally annihilate her, and Jesus Christ will return a second time to earth. And what a day that's going to be! Here's the application of all this the application of all of this is the third realization. To the psalmist, it was his future. The psalmist looked at the present and said, it's looking really bad right now for my country. The psalmist looked at the past and said, we've been here before and God is able. And so then the psalmist looked in front of him to the future. And the psalmist said, we need God today. And that's the thought I want you to take away this morning. It's been a rough year. We don't know what's going to happen in 2021. We don't know if our nation's going to survive or go down in dust. But one thing we know, God is able to do what God intends and wants to do for his purposes and his plans. And because we know God, we can have a solid, positive mental health. Because our hope is not in the Republican Party. And our hope is not in the doctors curing COVID. And our hope is not in political tensions and medical tensions uh, calming down, our hope is in the God who we seek every day and have a relationship with and know that He has always been with His people in difficult times. And He'll be with His people again today in difficult times. Where do I see that? Well, I see that in verse number one. In verse number one, the psalmist said, Keep not thou silence." O oh God, hold not thy peace and be not still. I want you to zero in on those three words. Silence, peace, and still. The psalmist said, God, say something. God, will you say something? Don't stay silent, God. And the third word was be still. And, and be not still, O oh God. Still speaks of an absence of activity. When you're still, you're, 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 you're not active. The solvents was saying, God, do something. God, don't be still. God, say something for crying out loud. God, do something for crying out loud. You know why? Because when we're in the midst of difficult, troublesome times... And God is silent and still. It appears that God is in agreement with what's happening. And that's why the middle word, hold not thy peace. God, don't be at peace with what is happening around us. God, don't give the impression that you're okay with what they've done Don't give the impression that you're in agreement with everything and everything's okay. God, would you say something? God, would you do something so that we'll know your heart and what's going on in your heart and mind? You see, there's hope in the psalmist. He knows where to turn, he knows who to look to. He's not looking around him for solutions. He's looking up and saying, God, would you say something? Would you do something so that we know you're not at peace with what's going on around us? What does he want God to do? (laughs) He says in verse number 9, do unto them as unto. Verse number 13, oh my God, make them like. Verse number 15, persecute them, make them afraid. Verse 16, fill their faces with shame, verse 17, let them be confounded and troubled, put them to shame, cause them to perish. See, the psalmist wants God to act. He wants God to do something. This was the problem Habakkuk had when Habakkuk said, God, you, you, you let me see wrong judgment. You let me see the wrong side winning. You let me see that everything's unjust around me. And God, you're not saying anything. You're not doing anything. God, where are you? And God said, Habakkuk, if I told you what I'm fixing to do, it'll, it'll, it'll blow your mind. And God told him what he was fixing to do. And Habakkuk says, you're right, God. I can't believe you're going to do that. Habakkuk's an interesting study along these same lines. God, would you say something? Would you do something? Don't give the impression that you're at peace with what's happening around us. He uses two illustrations, by the way, in verse number 13. Make them like a wheel and like a fire, a flame that sets the mountains on fire. Those don't mean anything to us today. The people at that day when this was written understood those. The wheel, the Hebrew word translated wheel, talked about the spherical uh, part of a Wild artichoke, and in the in the fall of the year, when it would would dry out, all of the this this stubble, he said the stubble before the wind. All of this stubble, the wind would pick it up, and it would just roll like tumbleweed. And what he was saying is, God, would you bring in a mighty wind and just blow our enemies away? And then the farmers every year they would when they got ready to plant their crops, they would wait for a windy day and they would set their fields on fire so the wind would carry that raging fire across their fields to burn up all the weed stubble and all the the, the thorns to prepare for them to be able to plant. And he would say, Oh God, would you do something? Would you just, a mighty wind, a mighty fire, just get rid of the enemies. But I want you to notice that the psalmist's heart was not judgmental. He said, and, it's, and, it's, um, and it has to do with what he wanted God to accomplish. And that's the third, the number three at the bottom of your page. God accomplished something of value. Verse number 16, that they may seek thy name, O God. You see, the psalmist wanted souls to get saved. He wanted the enemy of God to be converted. He wanted God to say something and do something in judgment so that the enemies of God would begin to seek God. He wants God to accomplish the work of converting and changing lives by bringing judgment. Do you understand that the judgment of God results in the conversion of convicted sinners? We in America have so rewritten the laws of our land. Our laws used to be written based on, thus saith the Lord. The morality of God was written through our law code. We've changed our law code to remove the law of God from the laws of America. Now people can live according to the laws of America and don't think they're doing anything wrong. And he said, God, would you judge your enemies? So that they will once again begin to seek you. God, let the judgment fall. So that unsaved people will be convicted of their activities. So they'll begin to seek you out and want to be saved. What if they won't? What if they won't get saved? He said, then calls them to perish at the end of verse 17. That men may know that thou whose name alone is Jehovah art the Most High Over all the earth. If the unsaved under the judgment of God. Don't get converted. Then when God judges them. And destroys them. The ones that watch. And see what happens to them. They'll know. That Jehovah God. Is the most high. Over all the earth. Everything points to the exaltation of God. To save sinners. And for unsaved people to see that God is right and the enemies of God are wrong. That's hope. That's confidence. That's trust that God has this thing. And whether God chooses to alleviate the problems politically, nationally, and internationally that has our world in a turmoil, whether God chooses to lift the scourge And give peace whether God chooses to go ahead and bring judgment. The end result is we want to see souls get saved. We pray God say something and do something. Because we want to be here to help people find you when they begin to seek you. We want to be here so that when the judgment of God falls. We can help people know who you are. And how they can escape the eternal judgment of God. The psalm is filled with political philosophy, but what's behind the political philosophy is hope and trust in God for his name's sake, for his glory, and for the salvation of souls. And so as we go into 2021, we go recognizing it's been a real difficult season in America. And yet, our Mental health is elevated as church-going people because we know God has a plan. God's at work. God is real. And our hope and our trust and our confidence is God. God, say something. God, do something. So your name can be glorified and sinners can begin to seek you as the God who has the answers to life's problems. What are you praying? Let's pray for God to say something. Let's pray for God to do something so that more souls will get saved. You know, the the dearth of evangelism is related to the acceptance of immorality as normal. When the law of the land is divorced from the law of God and everything becomes, and the ungodly becomes normal, then there's a lack of conviction for wrong. People used to get embarrassed by things. That they don't get embarrassed about anymore. Because the law of God is removed. And the psalmist said, God, say something. God, do something. So that once again, people will realize they're in a heap of trouble with their Creator. And begin to seek You. And we want to be here to help them find Jehovah, the Most High of all the earth.